Warning, this is the most important podcast of our lifetime. Hello, everyone. <laughs> what is Hapatarian? So what is, what is Hapa? So when you put together Hapatarians, what, what is that? You know the thing. They're here, to, <laughs> they're here to awkward it up for you guys. Which is a very interesting and beautiful mix of humanity. Anyone has a podcast. You're an extremist. Shut up. All right, let's, let's get to it. Hey, what's happening? And welcome to the Hopitarian Show, the only podcast that doesn't have their guests dance once the show starts. If you get that reference, then congratulations. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and in the comments, tell us how much you love the Hapa Ethnostate. Our guests today consider themselves anti-war, but they sure know how to get themselves into Twitter wars. It's the co-hosts of Conflicts of Interest, Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us back on the show, Shane. Yeah, thank you very much, Shane. Glad to be here. Yeah, uh, thanks for taking the time. And uh, I, I mean, like, like I was saying in the intro, you guys are anti-war, but I've seen you guys get into some squabbles on Twitter, I'll, I'll say. I don't want to like get into too much into specifics, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Especially you, Connor. You, you, you sometimes like, I don't know, you seem like... Um, you seem like a real laid back guy, but then once that, once, uh, you know, someone says something you don't like, bam, right well, in the ass. Uh, that was a personal thing. Um, <clears throat> I love those guys in New Hampshire and, uh, I just felt like it was kind of wrong for a certain somebody who said he was going to do something important and then totally lied about it to just go around patronizing and lecturing others about how to, you know, what's right and what's wrong for the movement. Uh, so <clears throat> I intervened. But I usually don't do that, actually. But uh, mm. but I'm glad to hear that um, you felt it was effective. I I, I mean, it kind of made me go like, I don't I don't even remember if they like that they promised something that I don't, I mean I just don't remember. I mean it's been so long it feels like, and this is like inside baseball for anyone's listening, just about like libertarian party politics. So I'm sure like half of the audience right now is like I don't give a flying. I don't care. I don't, you know, but, I, but there are people who go, like, you know, actually I'm interested in this. So, and I'm just curious because. I, oh yeah. I, I'll just say it. It's, it's Dave Smith said he was going to run for president. Yeah. And, uh, but that's what so, I was going to, and I'm sorry. I I don't want to feel like I'm blindsiding you or anything on this. No, you're good. But uh, I, I do feel like, did he actually promise that he was going to do that? Because I personally didn't hear him specifically say i am gonna run he just had that he was just kind of floating the idea and it wasn't just um hey yeah i'm gonna do that in, in 20s whatever year i will announce so just get ready for it um i know that the mises caucus had all his things they're gonna do and again i don't i'm not in like i don't i'm not registered libertarian in, in the party i'm not in that whole thing so i don't know you guys probably know way more about this than i do so I'm just curious, is that something that you felt, because you were saying that you felt kind of like, I don't know, I, I, mean, I don't know if backstabbed is the right term, but if they did if they did say that they promised they're going to do this, then I guess, I, I, I don't know. I feel like it as, I mean, you see all these people now in Republican, Democrat, I mean, Robert Kennedy Jr. announced that he's going to be running. Um, somebody else just, I think, said they're going to run in the Democrat. I can't remember who it was. Um, and then, of course, all the Republicans, like Tim Scott, Mike Pence. Uh, all Ron great Sand candidates. Yeah, all, all of them are great. I mean, Mike Pence, I mean, come on. Yeah. How pro-Israel do you have to be? I mean, come on, really? Um, well, he's got to compete with Bobby Kennedy Jr. So, Well, that's it's, true. It's a tough race in that in that regard. Th th that, is, that is true, yeah. Um, now, I, I think that, uh, you know, RFK, he's, he said some really good things. And that um, I'm going to screw up his name. I apologize. Uh, but that uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy guy, he's he said some good things as well. Again, I don't. I mean, I, I feel any person like if you're hoping that there's going to be a candidate out there who's going to run for president that is going to be 100 percent like on your side, I think that's being naive. Even a Libertarian Party candidate, that's just I, I just don't think that's realistic for someone who's going to be the nominee is going to be 100% on your side, is going to believe in and agree in everything. Like me personally, if Dave decided he was going to run, I'd 
I probably would agree with him on more things than uh, DeSantis or uh, an RFK Jr. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't think I would. I don't know if I would vote. I just I don't know yet. I'm not really sure where I'm at on this. Um, but I've never voted for president. Uh, yeah. I'm considering doing it for the first time next year for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., although he's making it more and more and more difficult every yeah. week. Right. Um, uh, at the same time, his China policy is so vitally important because we are very close to brinksmanship with China, uh, given especially mm -hmm. our yeah. Biden's unprecedentedly uh, bellicose Taiwan policy. I mean, putting troops on the island, uh, trying to turn the island into a giant weapons depot, signing off on military aid for Taiwan, training Taiwanese forces here on U.S. soil for war with the mainland, sailing warships to the Taiwan Strait every month. Now they're more often using spy planes to fly over the Taiwan Strait. And that's mm -hmm. to say nothing of the larger buildup around China the so-called pivot to Asia with the expansion of bases in, um, you know, in the Philippines, including three bases. He just got four new, uh, he secured four new bases in the Philippines, three of which are provocatively close to Taiwan hmm. and, uh, you know, expanding U S military access in the Pacific Island nations in spots like Papua new, in countries like Papua new Guinea, um, hmm. where, uh, They'll literally tell you the reason we're expanding so much is because we want to draw fire in all these different directions and make it that much more difficult for China when the war starts. Because it's very, I mean, with Russia, it, they don't, they say we'll defend every inch of NATO territory, but they don't openly talk about we're going to go to war with Russia directly and we're going to fight them and win. Whereas it's completely the opposite with China. I mean, especially under Biden, we have virtually every military branch saying that that's exactly what they intend to do. And they're all promoting how, well, so like you'll have like the army secretary or the head of Pacific air forces or the secretary of the air force or the secretary of the Navy promoting all these big projects that they're uh, undertaking in order to prepare for this war and how they're all going to be integrated. And they're all trying to get in on the gravy train because this project launched by Obama was mostly for a while, a major public works project and, uh, for the military industrial complex, but particularly the air force and the Navy. But now you got the Marines getting, uh, more and more involved as well as the army. And, uh, it's a full court press. They are absolutely at least on the surface and based on the changes to the policy, like completely getting rid of strategic ambiguity. And we all thought those were gaffes from Biden, but now we've had it confirmed twice this year by the office of the, well, the director of national intelligence, as well as the head of Indo-Pacific command, that they absolutely intend to go to war to defend the island's pseudo-sovereignty against China in a war that would almost certainly go nuclear at the same time that they're provoking that war with all their expanded ties with Taiwan. So to have someone like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to come out and say, we do not need to make Taiwan a military issue, and we never got our peace dividend after the end of the Cold War. We don't need to make China an enemy. We should be economically collaborating with them. We should not have this militarist policy. There's no reason for it. Taiwan doesn't want war. China doesn't want war. They want uh, peace and prosperity, and we can have that if we just abandon this imperialist uh, foreign policy aimed at both Russia and China. Um, and frankly, there's just, other than Ron Paul, uh, and Ron was, you know, he left Congress before this whole Asia pivot really got to the, to, to the level that it has been in the last several years. So I would say that at least, at, at least since Ron Paul, we have not had a candidate with this kind of a policy with regards to China. Cause now it's just, it's a by their lockstep in Congress and among the presidential candidates that it's just China's enemy number one. And it's all been enshrined in national defense strategies um, over the last few years under Trump and Biden. Uh, and so they're all on board for this. And so it's terrifying. But the only seeming seemingly the only option uh, that's viable uh, is Kennedy, who's completely against this, or at least he is for now. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how consistent he'll remain. Yeah, it's it is interesting that at least from what I've seen, it seems that um, China seems to be, and for the most part, seems to be the Republicans' boogeyman, and Russia seems to be the Democrats' boogeyman. Now, of course, there's bipartisanship for both of them, but it really does seem to be China is the that's the number one enemy for the Republicans, and we need to do something about them. And then Russia is just the same with. 
the the Democrats. And I don't I, I don't understand how that I, I just don't understand how that's like they don't they look at it because I've seen Republicans be like, yeah, we need to stop this war with uh, Russia and Ukraine and Russia need to get, get go to the negotiating table and they need to stop this. But then, yeah, with, with China, it's just they seem now they seem to be with China. They seem to just be convinced that they're buying all of our real estate. They're they're uh, they're just ramping up their military to the point of no return. And I, I don't know. I and and with with Taiwan with, with that whole issue, I mean, it, it seems to be if China believes that Taiwan is their property, like just like how Russia views Ukraine as their property, then does I mean does that even compute for for a lot of people? Because if that's like the invasion, let's just go with Russia Ukraine for example. Russia decides to attack because there's just way too much. There's all this NATO interference and they feel like they're back to a corner. Russia looks at Ukraine as their property. And as libertarians that, that you guys are, that would be, hey, that's our property. Don't You can't go on our property. You can't invade our property. So we're going to just, we're going to go there and boom. Now we're going to, hey, you, this is, this was your fault. Even though we're the ones doing, the, we're the ones that initiated this whole invasion or whatever you want to call it that's our property so doesn't that violate the non-aggression principle i, I don't even i don't so, even i don't know so i would i would maybe add a little bit more nuance to that shane and say that russia doesn't so much view ukraine as its property but more feels that ukraine presented such a security threat to russia that russia had to preemptively intervene to you know, squash the security threat of NATO expanding into Ukraine. So, you, you know, after the, the end of the Cold War for 30 years, you are for 25 years, Ukraine was its own country. And the Crimean Peninsula was a part of Ukraine and Russia was fine with that. It mm -hmm. wasn't until the U.S. pulled a, a coup in um, Kiev and, and switched the leadership there to a very pro-Western regime and started talking about expelling Russia from its naval base on the Crimean Peninsula that it had leased from Ukraine, uh, did Russia intervene. And part of it was, uh, you know, NATO was talking about replacing the Russian base there. So Russia felt like this was going to be a major threat to the Russian homeland to have this happen. And that's why they intervened. Where China does view Taiwan as a part of China. Now, Taiwan also views Taiwan as a part of China. You know, both countries sign off on the one China policy. It's just the government in Taipei says that there's one China and views the government of Taipei as that rightful government. And the government in Beijing, of course, views itself as a rightful government in Beijing. Now, I will say I think there's a similarity here in that uh, China, like Russia, is going to, if they end up intervening, it will not be because they feel Taiwan is their property, but because the American military presence and American military commitments to Taiwan have become so significant that they're actually starting to present a threat to the Chinese homeland. Has there been any Russian or Chinese military, I, I, I don't know, I guess infiltration or anything like that for american allies like do they has there been any china are there any chinese bases overseas that's not just china but they're in other countries like how american military has bases in around the world uh china i know has one overseas base and that's in djibouti it's actually right down the road from the american base and hmm. i believe that's their only official foreign base now they i'm sure have little military contingents in a few other places uh you know maybe they have a particularly large uh, amount of uh, you know guards at their embassy in a couple of countries or something like that but there is no uh, other chinese military base overseas russia has a couple well originally the one in crimea was a foreign military base they have one in um syria along the mediterranean sea and then i think there are still a few others spotted around some of the central asian uh soviet union countries that still have closer ties with russia but it, it if you look at a map 
and you looked at all the Russian bases, you know, they're, they're scattered around uh, countries that either border Russia or are at least in Asia. And then with, you know, with the U S military bases there, they surround Russia and China, Iran too. Hmm. And I also know a little bit about how Ukraine, they used to have nuclear weapons and then they had, and then they gave them up. Uh, is that... Well, yes and no. So there were nuclear weapons in Ukraine at the end of the Cold War. And Ukraine agreed to give those up as a, as several other, at least a couple other uh, former Soviet states did. And there's multiple reasons for this. Is You know, I mean, you can't just put nuclear weapons in your basement and leave them down there for 30 years and expect they're still going to work it and not right. become dangerous or anything like that. So I, I think, you, you know, for strategic reasons, just, you know, trying to deal with these weapons, Ukraine did agree to give them up. But, you, you know, I, I don't think Ukraine was ever really going to become a nuclear weapons state in, in a state that really has its own nuclear weapons program. And so they did agree to give up those stockpiles. Um, but, you know, this was way back, you know, in the very early days uh, of the end of the Cold War. I think the memorandum was signed in 1994. And, you know, I, I, this is a period of time where the American government, you know, under George H.W. Bush, the U.S. was actually questioning if it even wanted Ukraine to be independent from Russia. It actually, you know, as the Soviet Union was breaking up, it, Ukraine's been a part of Russia since well before the establishment of the Soviet Union. This is a, a part of Russia since the time of the Russian Empire. And so there was a lot of questions in the administration about actually trying to keep Ukraine as a part of Russia. And, and so, the, you know, this is kind of the aspect of, uh, you know, you got to understand the time period of when you're looking at the question of Ukraine giving up nuclear weapons and why. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because I know that's something that a lot of the, I, I guess, pro-Ukraine people, especially on social media, because I see them all the time, where you know they're just pro. Like, we want we want uh, Putin to to die, and and Russia needs to lose. The only the only outcome they see is Russia losing, Ukraine winning, and they're them becoming their own thing or whatever it is. And maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know. But just from what I've seen, that's they're pretty gung ho on that. Like that's that's what they want. They want Ukraine to like they don't see any problem with America giving them all these military equipment and money and, and all this stuff. Although I do think it's kind of funny that there's people who say we shouldn't give money to Ukraine, but then no, we should give money to this and that. It's like, I don't I don't know. Like how do I know what where the money's going? I don't even know. It's just it's just and I, I feel like well I don't want it there, but we should put it over here. Okay, well whatever. I mean, what you know? Um, yeah, there is but, this debate. I mean, you have like populists like Josh Hawley saying that if there are weapon systems that both Taipei and Kiev are demanding, Taipei should get preference. And it just it always strikes me as that's his part of the division of labor when it comes to the Hawks. Well, how uh, does he? How does he even? Like if if Taipei gets should get the priority, how how is he the one supposed to like? How does he go? Yeah, I think they should get priority. How do you, like why? Well, because he, I mean, it's just because he's this he's a very outspoken China hawk. In fact, yeah. he was the only, uh, I believe he was the only member of the Senate who voted against the ascension, uh, the idea of bringing uh, Sweden and Finland into NATO, and he said, yeah. basic, he said that the reason he's not interested in doing this is because we need to focus on China. We need to expand our military We're too far away from China. Yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. That's funny. But I mean, everything gets passed. I mean, it's, that's the, what's crazy about this current climate is instead of seeing so many of these John McCain, Hillary Clinton types who are so blatantly, well, Lindsey Graham is kind of a, an example of that still, but, and Bob Menendez chair of the Senate foreign relations committee, but there's a lot of people who, they sort of take up different posts. Like I'm extremely pro-Israel and anti-Iran, uh, but you know they don't make a big stink about China. Or there's some people that are just huge China hawks and they think the Ukraine war is a distraction. And then you have some that are just for everything. And particularly disturbing in the current era is, uh, like you say, the, the, the unanimity across the Democratic Party uh, right now as far as um, providing Kiev with this uh 
where there's just seemingly no limits on how much military aid can be provided. And then you see Mike Pence and like his the argument he got into with Tucker Carlson recently, his opposition, if you can even call it that, is that Biden is not arming Ukraine fast enough. And his source for that is I was just in Kiev meeting with Zelensky and he was complaining that the weapons aren't getting there fast enough. And so, yeah, it's a horrible uh, political climate right now to see um, that there's just no real option. There's, as you're saying, it's either we fund this uh, we either we want to build up some sort of a NATO style alliance in the Middle East to encircle Iran, or we want to expand NATO in Eastern Europe, or we want to move NATO to the Asia Pacific. I mean, it's just it there in the Biden pol- the Biden administration has since they came into office been exceptionally uh, more hawkish, even I would argue than the Trump administration. It's just been escalate nonstop escalation with North Korea, Iran, Russia and China. And well, it, was, it was kind of like a slow motion train wreck all through 2021, the buildup on Russia's border and the military, the constant military exercises in Eastern Europe on their border. The large, some of the largest uh, exercise military drills and war games held since the end of the Cold War. And uh, just, you know, I mean, NATO drills being carried out in Ukraine and massive 30 plus nation uh, naval warfare drills in the Black Sea. Just imagine if Russia and China and their allies and partners were doing the same thing in the Gulf of Mexico. It was just incredible to see. And there was, I mean, it was kind of crazy to watch all this unfold um, because I think, you know, they were simulate. I mean, they they did this under the Trump administration too, but it was crazy how in like November they were simulate, the uh, defense minister, Sergei Shogu of Russia came out and said, yeah, they just simulated, the Americans just simulated a nuclear first strike on Russia, flying bombers just over a dozen miles off of our borders. Hmm. And so it's just, you know, it's crazy what, what the American empire is doing. And Biden's administration was just, and I think it's largely because their administration is full of people from uh, the Center for New American Security, which is one of the largest arms-funded think tanks in the Beltway. Um, and you have people like Tony Blinken who were acting when they were, weren't in government during the Trump era. They were acting as consultants for the military-industrial complex. Has there been anything regarding you, the Russia and Ukraine war uh, since we're just talking about strictly the how the American government has funded Ukraine or whatever. Has there been anything that Russia has done that you feel they should have done better or it wasn't the right way to go? I mean, I, I think the whole way that Russia handled it was basically not the right way to go. I think, you know, during the Biden administration, it, it became very clear to the Russians that the U.S., was making Ukraine a de facto NATO member. That that meant like carrying out massive war games inside Ukraine, training the Ukrainian army to NATO standards, and all but officially making Ukraine uh, a, a member of the alliance. And so Russia tried to put a whole bunch of troops on Ukraine's border to get the West to negotiate. And, you know, basically threatening them like, hey, we'll invade if you don't negotiate and agree that Ukraine's not going to become a member of NATO. They also made some other demands. I'm sure some of the stuff they were willing to, you know, work with the West on and some of the stuff was a little bit more concrete. Like I'm guessing Russia was pretty serious about making the U.S. remove the Aegis Shore systems. These are uh, air defense systems. They're missile interceptors. However, the launchers for the missile interceptors could also uh, fire nuclear-tipped cruise missiles and were explicitly banned at one point by the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, but the U.S. has since left that. Uh, but Russia would like a basically a return to that treaty and for the U.S. to remove those systems from Europe. And so I think, you know, with probably those two agreements that NATO would stop treating Ukraine as a member and the American... Um, um, air defense systems being removed, I think Russia would have been willing to compromise there and remove the troops from Ukraine's border uh, with no invasion. However, the West refused to negotiate, and then Ukraine ramped up on attacks on the Russian-backed forces in Ukraine, because Ukraine had been in the middle of the civil war since 2014. And so, you know, as the Russian military buildup is going on along Ukraine's border, there's also a civil war going on in that country. And Russia backed one side in that civil war, the the people of the Donbass region. And so in the days before, 
Ukraine ramped up attacks on the Donbass region. And I think this is my interpretation. We obviously don't know what was happening in the halls of the Kremlin, but I think Russia basically felt like their bluff was called. They didn't intend to invade, but they felt like their bluff was called. And then rather than uh, doing what I would have, you know, thought would have been the smart move, which would have been regroup, make sure you have like a, a solid game strategy here. Uh, they decided to go ahead and invade. And that invasion pushed their troops close to Kiev because uh, what we saw in the early days of the war, there were basically two different, very serious negotiation efforts uh, that Ukraine and Russia were engaged in in the first three months. And one was mediated by the Israelis. And we have statements from the Israeli prime minister at the time, Nafali Bennett, about how basically the West discouraged talks, and that's the reason a deal didn't get done. And then there was another effort mediated by Turkey and the UN. And we have essentially the same thing coming from the Turkish foreign minister at the time, uh, saying that there were parties in the West that didn't want to make a deal. But the most concrete reporting we have on this is that at the same time, the U, uh, UK prime minister, then Boris Johnson, you, you know, that dumpy looking dude, uh, he goes <laughs> to Kiev and tells Zelensky that the West, because at this time, the West had only sent Ukraine about a billion dollars or so in weapons. And he tells Zelensky that the West is willing to make a serious commitment to Ukraine's war effort uh, if Ukraine won't make the deal with Russia. And so mm -hmm. Zelensky agrees to that, and the West starts sending weapons, and talks are off then. And prior to that, Putin, uh, his forces that were pushed towards Kiev were there, but they I don't think they were sustainably there. And so that kind of meant for Russia that there was a timeline where they would either have to remove those troops or they would have to get a deal done and end the war. And so Putin removed those troops, and this was seen as a huge victory for Ukraine, which I think it was more self-defeat for Russia than an actual victory for Ukraine here. And Russia started to engage in basically the war we see today, where they're taking territory in Ukraine with the idea that they're going to annex a, a big chunk of Ukraine that they feel they need to take so that there is a secure situation for Moscow. Essentially, they want, you know, uh, several states of Ukraine to now become a part of Russia, to give Russia a larger barrier between themselves and the North Atlantic Alliance, and also to give Russia more control over what happens in Ukraine uh, going forward. And so, uh, you know, I, I think the way that Putin handled all this was very poor. It, you know, if you're going to go to war, as much as I hate saying this as an anti-war activist, I think, you know, go don't don't do this bluff strategy that putin i think was trying to engage in and then of course we saw that russia is a extremely corrupt state state and corrupt states have a lot of problems uh you know carrying out government plans and a military battle is a government plan and so when you have a really corrupt state that, that goes really poorly and i i think it took a pretty much a solid year for the russian military to really realize how many deficits it has it's one thing to send a few thousand troops to syria and to bomb a bunch of terrorists and other people when you don't care how many civilians you kill but to wage a war net store with tactical ground maneuvers where you're trying to capture territory and things like that is very difficult and so it took russia quite a bit of time another big uh i think mistake russia made is they didn't develop anti-personnel drones before the war started and they only did that after the start of the war. And, mm. and I think those have been seen as pretty critical, especially the loitering munitions. They have these drones that kind of just hover until, you know, somebody comes along and then they'll drop a grenade on on some poor guy and kill him in uh, that. So I, I guess I would say those from my view are the, you know, realistically, the big mistakes Putin made. Now, obviously, from a moral perspective, I would also say that launching the war in the first place. Uh, you know, was the wrong thing to do, even if Russia was coming under security threat and did Putin did have some legitimate grievances against the West that certainly didn't justify uh, starting a war that's killed hundreds of thousands of people, including, you know, tens of thousands, if not more Russians. Connor, have anything to add to that? Uh, just basically, um, I think at the same time, he underestimated uh, Putin underestimated how much support. Uh, Ukraine would get from NATO and how much uh, willingness there was. I mean, because the European economy has been destroyed. I mean, there's been no pushback uh, on the Nord Stream bombings except from the 
uh, well, from the German population is furious about it. And from what I understand from Ray McGovern, Seymour Hersh's article outlining, uh, at least with his sourcing, that uh, the Biden administration was responsible for that, using the U.S. Navy divers under the cover of um, uh, uh, NATO uh, drills in the Baltic Sea, Balt Ops 2022 in June of last year. Uh, they planted these mines on the pipelines. And, and it wasn't just that. It was also the fact that you know, spending all this money on the war, causing all this inflation, cutting off trade with Russia or to a large extent, you know, cutting off the energy, uh, just driving up prices. We've saw last year, we saw protests of tens of thousands of people in Italy and in France and Germany and uh, the Czech Republic as, as well. And at the same time, there's just it's a constant. I mean, it's unprecedented that we've provided one hundred and thirteen billion dollars or pledged one hundred and thirteen billion dollars for this proxy war. And I don't know. I mean, maybe Putin didn't. He's always uh, we've heard from um, from Clinton's former secretary, uh, secretary of defense, William Perry, that Putin believes there's a plot to uh, overthrow him. Uh, but I mean, they they explicitly came out and said that Biden said so in March in Poland. And, and then we had Lloyd Austin say that the policy here is to weaken Russia so that they cannot do the kind of things that they're doing in Ukraine, which is a strange way of putting it because it means they want to cripple their military to the point where they can't defend themselves just off their border, concur with this encirclement strategy and this sort of working around the normal process of bringing Ukraine into NATO officially, which would mean you'd have to get uh, you'd have to get the part the, the parliaments of all these all the different NATO states to agree to bring Ukraine into NATO. What we ended up doing is using the Pentagon and the State Department to work around that and make these bilateral agreements that just basically bypassed that and then made Ukraine a de facto NATO state. So in the meantime, they are depending on how you read Article Five. And Ted Galen Carpenter has a great piece about this that came out last year. But you could make the case that these NATO states that are funding the proxy war that are even in some cases putting special operations forces on the ground, including Washington um, and, uh, you know, providing the uh, in the case of the U.S., providing intelligence and, and all these different things that we're doing for Ukraine to help them bleed Russia. We are kind of providing uh, an Article 5 uh, assistance under Article 5 to a de facto NATO member who was attacked by Russia. And so it's I mean, it's it's. If I wouldn't have expected that they would be talking about sending the F-16s now and the, and the fact that Ru Britain has sent over depleted uranium munitions with these Challenger 2 tanks and now we're sending cluster bombs uh, and they're being used against Russian soldiers and the British have sent these Storm Shadow missiles that go uh, – uh, that are that have a distance of more than a hundred, a range, excuse me, of more than 155 miles. They're la air launched cruise missiles from the MiG 29s that uh, some of the Eastern European NATO states have transferred over to um, Ukraine. Uh, the it's it's absolutely crazy, and to see, um, you know, the, the just the 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 willingness to just continue to cross these red lines because we have now neo-nazi militias like the russian volunteer corps going into russia and attacking civilians particularly in the belgorod region we have you know ukrainian drones attacking moscow including in civilian areas but also drone striking the kremlin and it's just the russians will come out and they go we know that they can't do this without american intelligence in fact there was a drone strike in December of last year that attacked the Engels Air Force Base, where nuclear-capable strategic bombers are stored in Russia. And NATO military sources in NATO countries told the Asia Times that, yeah, they're using American satellite GPS data mm -hmm. to carry out these attacks. And at the time, we got a report out of the Times of London where the Pentagon was saying, yeah, we... Uh, we're not concerned about escalation anymore. We were, but you know, if Putin hasn't attacked a NATO state yet and he hasn't used tactical nuclear weapons, then what do we care? And then there was an article after all these attacks in Russia where Biden's administration, according to the New York Times, was saying they've kind of shrugged off the concerns about all these cross-border attacks into Russia. And then you have Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland coming out and saying we want to see attacks on Crimea. It's just 
I mean, they're they're surprising me with how far they're willing to push this envelope, because certainly if they really do try to retake Crimea, which they can't do. But if they really start launching, if we send the uh, Army tactical missile systems, um, which have a range of about 200 miles and they start really launching uh, artillery at Crimea, they're already doing these sabotage attacks and, and attacking airfields and uh, different positions in Crimea, carrying out sabotage attacks against railways and things like this. Um, I think it's really unprecedented. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And it's very possible, as Ted Snyder has a great piece about this at the at the Institute, that we've just the the Washington has lost control of Kiev, um, particularly their military intelligence uh uh, you know, their military intelligence forces are carrying out these attacks or involved heavily in these attacks that are happening across the border. And it's always hinted that they, that Kiev is responsible. And we know from the discord leaks that Zelensky is very eager to get these long range weapon systems so that he can take the fight directly into the Russian mainland. And they've said specifically that they're trying to attack the civilian population to turn them against the war. And so you know, it, I think we're complete. I think that the Biden administration and NATO are so ideologically committed to this proxy war and so virulently, uh, virulently anti-Russian that they've put themselves into a very difficult situation here where you have this out of control proxy. Uh, and they and it's pretty clear to me that Kiev is angling for direct NATO intervention into the war. Otherwise, I don't think they would be so eager to just continue attacking Russian positions inside the mainland and really taking the fight to Crimea. I mean, ultimately, what they want is us to come in and fight the war for them, which we saw when they uh, when the air defense missiles landed in Poland and killed two farmers. Mm -hmm. And they and even I believe it was Jake Sullivan who had to tell Zelensky when Zelensky was going, it was Russia, it was Russia. What is NATO going to do about this now? What is NATO going to do about it now? They just attacked Poland. What are you going to do? And uh, it was, I believe it was Sullivan who told him, you need to shut up right now. This is hmm. very serious. And they weren't letting him get in contact with Biden for a few days or, or Blinken, I believe. So, yeah, they, I mean, he's been, they've been out of control of the whole, it seems to me, the whole situation, at least for several months. Um, but there's just, it's like the China thing. There's just no, you cannot realistically talk about cutting off aid and forcing concessions on the Ukrainian side to get them to go to the negotiating table. We had Blinken come out and now we have Mark Milley, who previously was saying relatively reasonable things about how we might have peaked in terms of the battlefield successes that Ukraine can have last November. And now would be a good time to go and have some negotiations. But now he's as much of a cheerleader as anybody saying, no, 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 the counteroffensive, don't judge it for the way it is now with all these little successes and these heavy losses on the Ukrainian side. It's going to be a long, bloody, hard fight. And that's what we want. And that's what Blinken is saying, too. So they don't, you know, in fact, the Turkish foreign minister, when they blew up the talks in Istanbul, when Boris Johnson went to Kiev and sabotaged all that, his exact quote was that following the NATO foreign minister's meeting, it was the impression that there are those within NATO member states that want the war to continue. Let the war continue and Russia gets weaker. They don't care much about the situation in Ukraine. And that's perfectly exemplified in this um, provision of cluster bombs. So I have a couple things that I wanted to touch on is that it seems that the Russian military and they think because when they were doing this invasion, they were probably thinking that was going to be done. This is going to be a quick and easy thing or whatever. But then, yeah, like you were saying, they kind of underestimated how much support they were going to get. I mean, I, that was definitely bad on putin because i mean you see all like nato and you see all the people or all the people like all the governments that support ukraine why wouldn't you think they would be sending all this military aid and and financial aid to ukraine to help them fight this war i, I that i think was definitely um an underestimation for sure and i, I think russian's military isn't as strong as maybe they thought it was and it has nothing to even nothing to do with America helping them. I'm sure even if there was no uh, anywhere near as much support as they're getting over there in Ukraine, maybe maybe the military or the American government is going to send, eh, we'll send you like $10 million or something like that. I don't know how much that would be in Ukrainian money, but I'm sure it's a lot. 
and that would probably help them get what they needed and, and buy other things from other countries, whatever. And then this is still going to be going on for who knows how long. And so I think that was an underestimation on their part. And also you've mentioned neo-Nazi militias in Ukraine. How many neo-Nazis are there actually in Ukraine for this to be an actual thing for us to worry about? Because that's something here in America that people talk, oh, there's a ton of white supremacists and neo-Nazis here. But is it something that we should actually be concerned about for and with this, uh, with the Russia-Ukraine war? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say so. I think anytime you have a war, like, you know, a country that's at war, the most extreme and the most radical people are probably going to end up with more and more power. And we've seen that, you know, in the 2014 coup in Ukraine, a lot of the positions of power were filled by people who were about Nazis, people who passed laws in Ukraine that, you know, elevated the Ukrainian nationality over others in the country, including not just Russians, but, you know, Poles and Hungarians and any other minority group. You know, Hungary has major issues with Ukraine because of the country's cultural and language laws. And they also target the, you know, uh, Hungarian minority in that country. Poland voices those concerns less now, but they but they've certainly had them as well. Uh, So, you know, they're problematic on that front. You know, even Zelensky, when all of his movies and TV shows were in Russian, because until he ran for president, he didn't speak Ukrainian. He only spoke Russian. So serving other people that Netflix show is in Russian. But he had a movie that was banned. Uh, It was called Love in the Big City, too. And just like the name sounds, it was a rom-com. And I'm guessing it wasn't particularly good. Uh, like most rom-coms aren't and uh this was it was banned because it was in the russian language and you know they at the time they had uh, a member of the slavoda party of ukraine and that was this uh party that was tied to a neo-nazi militia and that um that you know that that minister banned Zelensky's movie because it was in russian so you know the, these people are in prominent positions in ukraine they're in positions of power Uh, at least times throughout the war, the C-14 group, this is uh, C-14 stands for the 14 words of the white supremacist creed. So these are like about neo-Nazis have had their run and were more or less a security force for the city of Kiev. Uh, And then, of course, as Connor mentioned, we have a neo-Nazi militia carrying out raids inside of Russia using American weapons. And at least according to them, they're acting in coordination with Kiev. And assuming since they have American weapons, they probably got to be at the in coordination with Kiev. Uh, and that's how they got those weapons in the first place. So, uh, you, you know, as, as far as total percentage of Ukrainians, Shane, probably pretty small. Now, another thing that's happened, and uh, I've covered this at the Libertarian Institute throughout the war, whenever there's, you know, this kind of ethno-nationalist fight, was it drew, do? It draws in the other white ethno-nationalists. And so, you know, there's Americans and people from Eastern Europe and, you know, all over the, the you know, white world who have gone to Ukraine to fight on behalf of Ukrainians. And, and they're all about neo-Nazis gaining battlefield experience. And so I think just kind of like we had to worry about ISIS where, with people coming home, you know, with battlefield trained battlefield experience, you know, violence and, and all that in their background now. I think we should worry about that in the, the Western world at this point, too. Um, you know, because there are certainly enough of them, but I, I do think there are people who paint the neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine a little too broad, like the Ukrainian military writ large, you know, the hundreds of thousands of conscripted Ukrainian men, most of them, 99% of them probably are not neo-Nazis, right? You know, there, there's probably a small fraction of them that are, and, uh, you know, maybe a slightly larger one of people who, have some bad beliefs, but you know they're they're not violent neo Nazis that anybody really has to worry about in the long term. So it's not necessarily that there are so many of them in Ukraine. It's just that you know they're gaining battlefield experience, they're gaining access to weapons, they're gaining money, they're carrying out attacks in Russia, potentially potentially po- provoking wider conflict, and uh, you know they're they're gaining a lot of power in Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh interesting that if they're in positions of power, then that would be something to to keep an eye on. I mean, people talk about that here where, oh, this person is is a senator or something like that. And they're, they have all this power to do whatever they're able to do in terms of passing laws and, and a Supreme Court judge too, 
that, oh, these nine people have all the power for the most part. And they built Clarence Thomas as some white supremacist, which is just like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Oh, no, we're talking about people who like have swastika tattoos, Nazi tattoos. The symbols for a lot of these militias right. are symbols they adopted from Nazi era Germany. Uh, they all worship Stefan Bandera, who was a Ukrainian who cooperated with the Nazis and helped implement the Holocaust in Ukraine. So uh, no, these are these are not, you know, the American, the the, the current American political discord Nazi right where th this and this upsets me so much because it's mainly happening among the Democrats where everybody they don't like right now is a far right extremist. There are far right extremists everywhere. Ron DeSantis is a far right extremist. Like th these absurd statements when he's a Republican, but that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he's a war hawk. He's a Republican. He's a bad guy. He's a political leader in America. I'm not denying any of that. But as far as like radical ideology goes, Ron DeSantis isn't looking to kill off the black people in Florida to create a white state. That's not what he's doing. In fact, he's constantly pandering to the, the Latino population of Florida and doing everything he can to stoke wars in Latin America to get more votes out of that community. So, you know, he's certainly not somebody who's just a diehard white supremacist looking to advance the white ideology like these nut jobs in Ukraine are. Uh, you know, these people are, are hardcore, like Ukrainian blood is superior to all other blood. And Ukraine should be a pure Ukrainian state for the Ukrainians. You know, this kind of actually disturbing rhetoric, not the kind of, uh, you know, we want to have borders in America. And that makes you a Nazi, apparently. Well, not to completely derail what you just said, but I think Hoppe Blood's the most superior. So, you know, I guess that's. <laughs> but I don't have any power, so what do I? What am I gonna do? Well, you know that is the reason <laughs> I come on this show, Shane, is just so when the Hoppas get all the power, that you know we're we're friends of Hoppas, and, and we're not going to be purged <laughs> like the rest of them. We could just live as second class citizens here. Yeah, you'll get some you'll get some good uh, perks, whatever. But yeah, we we get the big house. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so I guess just to uh, um finish this off and talk about what's going on with um over in north korea and in south korea and how america and japan are also helping with the south koreans and, and all that um can you just give like a, a brief overview of what's going on with that because it just seems like it happens it's just it's like a an endless cycle of north korea is doing this and japan and, and south korea are doing this to oh north korea did this well we'll do this too and then it's like a back and forth and then America is obviously on the one side and then whoever else is going to be on North Korea's side. Um, so can you kind of just give a little brief overview of what's happening there uh, right now that you can let us know about, uh, Connor? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, particularly since Biden came back into office, there's been a complete rollback of the previous, especially the latter part of the Trump administration, where they had a president, um, Moon um Moon Jae-in in South Korea, mm -hmm. who yeah. wanted to make peace. He wanted to finally have a settle, a real settlement and end the Korean War and and have peace on the peninsula. And he didn't handle everything very well. I mean, that famous summit between Kim and Donald Trump, he went down into the basement and it wasn't there. And he should have been because mm. it just made everything look like, yes, yeah, South Korea is controlled by the U.S. Mm. Um which is not exactly uh, incorrect in, in, in many cases. And so, but anyway, so you have um, Biden comes into office after dialogue has been reopened, uh, weapons tests have been uh, curtailed and there have been, there's been a, there haven't been these live fire major military games, uh, which are extremely provocative. I mean, we can just put the shoe on the other foot for one minute and imagine we do this, like I was saying earlier to Russia, to China, to uh, Iran and so since Biden has come into office, they've given a ultimatum to Kim, which is you and they've just reaffirmed it here again recently. You can get get rid of all your nuclear weapons or we just maintain the indefinite sanctions. If we maintain our sanctions indefinitely, we're going to resume all those live fire war games. And on top of that, Biden has um, 
inked a trilateral military pact with South Korea and Japan that eyes China and uh, and North Korea. And so what we have now, as you're pointing out, is these uh, military drills that are being carried out with uh, the U.S., Japan and South Korea. And this year, the U.S. and South Korea have been carrying out some of their largest military exercises in the history of their alliance. And um, so and one of the and we're seeing the deployment of just this week of a nuclear armed submarine in Busan, uh, which is just a complete, uh, just a only for provocative purposes, uh, just menacing North Korea with, uh, as I say, complete destruction and obliteration with nuclear weapons. But we're also <laughs> sending heavy bombers, B-52s, Reaper armed drones, aircraft carriers, uh, to, you know, to carry out uh, Asia Pacific and in Northeast Asia. And this is all has to do with China as well. Um, but what we what they've essentially done with North Korea is just gone back to uh, a very hawkish, unre uh, just completely unreasonable policy. And so in response to all this, what Kim has done is he's resumed. He's now since 2022 carried out over 100 missile tests. And he's also uh, this year, I believe, carried out four ICBM test fires. Now, what's interesting about this is in January, there was a national intelligence estimate from the Office of Director of National Intelligence, and uh, that's Avril Haines, the top spy in the country. And what the intelligence community has concluded, and this was declassified or uh, in last month, I want to say, uh, where what the, basically what they're saying is that we know Kim is not going to use nukes, his nukes for offensive military purposes. He's using them. He's using these test fires and these wet and these uh, missile launches for uh, basically for leverage in diplo for diplomacy, per for diplomatic purposes and for negotiations. What the problem is, is that Biden is refusing to talk and only escalating tensions and refusing to do anything to try and settle things down. Uh, and so and now we have a much more hawkish president in South Korea, uh, Yoon Suk-yul, who when Biden, when he went to visit Biden in um, April in D.C., Biden pledged to him, yeah, we're going to periodically send nuclear armed ballistic missile submarines to South Korea. And he's also trying to get NATO involved in hmm. countering North Korea's so-called nuclear threats. And uh, no, it's just on its face. It's just this cruel and human policy and really just designed to, uh, I think, to just raise tensions and maintain uh, our military supremacy in that part of the world. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, building up against China as well. Yeah, an interesting fact that I learned about Yoon is that, at least I think it was a fact. I mean, I read it in an article, so who knows, but he was a big fan of Milton Friedman, which I thought was kind of interesting. So I don't know if that has anything to do with what we're talking about here where, you know, oh yeah, yeah, very hawkish against North Korea. I just, I just thought that was kind of interesting that he was a fan of Milton Friedman. I don't, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, so uh, I guess I'll end it with you, Kyle, uh, with, with all of this. Do you, th uh, and, and again, like real quick, do you think that, I, I don't think anything's going to come of this because I, I feel that it's just been, it's just been like an endless, and again, maybe I'm being naive on this. I mean, we were, a lot of people were naive about Russia deciding to go to war with Ukraine. So, I mean, who knows? I mean, tomorrow, North Korea, but yeah, you know what? Screw this. We're just going to just shoot all, whatever, who cares? We're just going to start attacking everything. And do, do you, do you think that North Korea is actually going to give up their nuclear weapons and just, whatever America is saying they're going to just agree with. Absolutely not. And yeah. at this point it's because the Biden's North Korean policy isn't about North Korea. It's about China. And that's the fundamental problem here is that his administration decided to basically re implement the Obama policy of strategic patience, which means we're not going to talk to the North Koreans, but Hey, guess what? Shane, if the North Koreans come knocking on our door and say, we'll give up all of our nuclear weapons, we'll say, cool guys, we support that. And uh, like that's going to happen. So they refuse to engage in a actual meaningful diplomacy. They just issue demand after demand after demand in North Korea. But then they're concerned about China, 
which North Korea looks like basically a little pimple on China's ass, right? Like mm. it's this tiny little country next to this gigantic country. Yeah. And so if the U.S. is trying to surround China and trying to take all of China's neighbors and turn them against China, and North Korea is about the only country that the U.S. isn't trying to do that with, that means that all these other countries are more aligned with the U.S. And for North Korea, this has some other implications as well, because, you know, the, the Second World War wasn't that long ago. And the crimes that Imperial Japan committed against uh, Korea were, I, I don't know, say I don't want to like compare just to the Holocaust, but like, you, you know, measurable to the crimes committed by Japan's World War II allies, uh, the, the Nazis, you know, they, they did horrible things to the Chinese and the Korean people. And so what a lot of what the U.S. is trying to do is get all of our partners in the Pacific on the same side. And this is really all about China, but it means bringing South Korea and Japan closer together, which North Korea views as a particular threat in a particular affront to the Korean people because of the crimes of the, the Second World War. And, you know, this is actually a difference in policy between Moon and Yule as well. Because Moon was far more resistant to normalizing with Japan uh, because a, a lot of people in Korea don't feel like particularly the comfort women have received the re reparations or whatever you want to call them that they really right. deserve from the Japanese. And, um, you know, Yoon has really sold out on that to the Americans to get more arms and more weapons coming in. And so until we realize that you have to deal with North Korea and basically until we adopt the same policy on China, I don't see any way we're going to be able to, you know, really progress anywhere with North Korea. Now, Shane, I think you made some great observations on why we don't have to worry today that there is going to be a war between North and South Korea or North Korea and the U.S. And that's mainly because North Korea's military power lies in their nuclear arsenal. But using your nuclear arsenal for Kim is a, is a suicide promise, right? He doesn't have a sufficient nuclear arsenal to take out the American threat, not even the South Korean threat, really. Uh, you know, he could inflict pain on the U.S. He could inflict pain on South Korea, Japan, Guam, uh, probably a few other American bases, countries in the region, things like that. But there's really no way that North Korea could win the conflict or anything like that. And certainly North Korea would be nuked in retaliation. And uh, I'm, my guess is that most of the North Korean people would end up dead from from that kind of conflict. And my guess is that the Kim family knows and would really, really hope to avoid that end to their rule. So I, I don't think there there is this need uh, you know, to worry today that there's going to be a war breakout. However, the other problem is, is there's no future that I could conceive of where the U.S. adopts a foreign policy that, one, treats North Korea, you know, North Korea as a sane, rational actor that has reasonable demands and that they can be negotiated with to achieve those demands. And two, that we're going to adopt a rational policy enough against China that North Korea doesn't have to worry about the massive American military presence in the region that isn't necessarily directed at Pyongyang, but look, you know, Pyongyang and Beijing aren't that far apart. And so, you know, North Korea rightly fearing all the American military abilities and, and realizing that could be turned on North Korea is just, you know, common sense from Pyongyang. So, uh, you know, it, it's not going to maybe boil over anytime soon, but there's no future on the horizon where this is going to be resolved either. So I just thought of something. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thought of this, but what if like the U.S. was giving them this deal or whatever. Hey, if you end your nuclear weapon power or whatever, you give you give those up, lend the sanctions and all that, and we'll guarantee that you, that you can join NATO. Do you think that would – do you think they would like that? I, I mean, North Korea is more looking to dissolve NATO than to join the alliance. <laughs> I, I guess at this, at this point, any kind of deal is going to have to be very slow and step-by-step. Step. So North Korea will – you know, say, agree to stop reprocessing new plutonium so the U.S. knows that North Korea isn't going to be ma manufacturing any more nuclear weapons is a first start. And then the U.S. lifts some sanctions, maybe if arrives uh, Pyongyang with a little bit of humanitarian assistance. Step number two, you, uh, North Korea gives five nuclear weapons to some international organization to start dismantling these things, right? And they go from... 50 to 45 and then to 30 and then to 20 and then to 10. And then maybe they hold on to two, 
right? Mm-hmm. And, we, we, and we're okay with that. We're like, all right, you need to feel have those two nudes to feel comfortable. That's fine. We're not going to have a hostile policy against you. So we don't have to worry about it. And, uh, you know, two nuclear weapons, you're not going to start a war with that. And, you know, with a pretty poor conventional military, I don't really think there's a threat posed by Pyongyang. So, I, I mean, I think a deal is actually pretty easy to find with rational actors in Washington and Seoul. It's just it's not on the horizon. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and end it there. Um, so let everyone know where they can find you and your work. Uh, Kyle can go at first. All right. Well, we both work for the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com, but right now the Institute is hosting a big fundraiser. We just published a new book, uh, Questioning the COVID Company Line by Lori Calhoun. Absolutely fantastic. Smashes so much of the COVID narrative. And, you know, really from a libertarian perspective that, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoy reading like RFK Jr. stuff on, on this uh, but Lori, you know, is one of us. And so it resonates more with me. I really like her book. I, I recommend it to anyone. Uh, but if you don't, you know, if you're not into the COVID stuff and you want some other kind of books, uh, if you donate to the Institute, I think for 50 bucks, you get a signed copy of any of Scott Horton's books. Uh, we have kit bats going all the way up to 250 bucks. But any donation you make basically helps you know, Scott Horton's Institute, all the things that Scott Horton says are absolutely the most important things to focus on, uh, the most dangerous parts of the state. That's what we're trying to dismantle. That's what we're talking about and writing about every day. And so, uh, you know, help us do that and donate to the Institute. And other than that, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Anslone underscore. Oh, I'm on Instagram now, too. Oh, congratulations on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I will be here soon, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, and I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Freeman's mind 96 and then, yeah, just check out, uh, our articles and our podcasts. We're all going to be up at the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com and the Institute in the news section and the featured articles section and all of our stuff will be there in the blog and antiwar.com as well. Um, and the, in the news, uh, section. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Shane. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thanks guys for coming on. Uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. And uh, for everyone watching and listening, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you in the next one. The, the, the truck's backing up because they're hearing us. Uh, I think it's time to end this episode. And smash that like button. Yeah, smash that like button. Just break your computer. And don't forget to subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Bye. Bye.